welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. How you doing? I'm doing great. Um, in a great mood all around. Things are going great. Um, but uh, something popped up. I, I know you don't spend as much time on you know, in like the film Twitter, uh, world that I do, I do yeah. as I do. Um, but something popped up this week that uh, a lot of people in my feed were talking about, um, uh, that I was like, Oh, Tyler has to hear about this. Oh boy. So I am going, Oh shit. Okay. So, um, I'm going to read you a couple of tweets from someone who goes at swin 24 S W I N 24 S W I N 24. Okay. Verified account. So apparently people have heard oh, this person. All right. uh, just got done speaking to a journalism class at American university and the subject of Goodfellas came up and I asked how many students had seen it. Literally only one sophomore raised her hand. I couldn't believe it and dedicated a not insignificant loud amount of time to second tweet chastising these college kids for being abominable people and ordered them to watch the movie after they left class as homework and they could like rent it or stream it on HBO go today. And so there was a lot of discussion about how, to deal with the fact that younger generations don't have the same touchstones as you do and how to maybe effectively recommend a movie to someone right. as opposed to literally chastising someone for a not inconsiderable amount of time and assigning a movie as homework. And so you have, I thought of you immediately cause you've talked so much about how yeah. your students have different touchstones than you do. Yeah. And, uh, Here's what I'll say is that like, and I don't chastise my students. I might express surprise and my, and, but I honestly, like if I do, I try to make sure that I, I'm, that I communicate that like, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm just surprised. Yeah. You know? Um, but at the same time, like I'm teaching a film class. This is a journalism class. A journalism class. You know. Well, you know that great, you know, America, like, uh, um, uh, all the president's men. Sure. Spotlight. Spotlight. Goodfellas. Uh, yeah, Those are the right top there, three yeah. journalism movies. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, oh, yeah, I'm sure this made the news. Um, yeah. Uh, it's like I, I recognize that I'm kind of like a crusty old man and that there are times when I bemoan the fact that like some people older or younger, like haven't seen certain movies, but I feel like that's actually going away. And I feel like for me, it has to because I'm a teacher and I have to realize that like I'm twice the age of, of many of my students Mm -hmm. and that like, yeah. And they're not all, and they're also not film students. Like this is like, I teach at film programs that are within uh, a college, but to my not, I don't think anybody can actually like get their degree at a community college in film. Mm-hmm. This counts towards like a different type of credit. So these are not even film people that are taking a number of film classes. Many of them, it's the only film class they're going to take. And so don't get me wrong. I'm happy to like, I'm happy to, to recommend things and show them things that they might not watch otherwise. Um, but it would be, it's idiotic. It's genuinely idiotic. I think to chastise for long periods of time. If you want to do it jokingly, that's fine. Mm-hmm. And be, be like, Oh, you guys come on. You know, that's fine. I get it. But at the same time, like 
first off, I can't get, you can't guarantee that they would like that movie just cause you did. Yeah. Goodfellas is, I think it's actually a very, a very watchable movie, but not necessarily. It's not a guarantee. Yeah. I think um, Goodfellas is pretty great. I know that's like one, it's one of my most basic <laughs> film right. opinions, but, uh, I think Goodfellas is pretty incredible, but I also, my, my approach has been for as long as I can remember as far back as you can remember, as far back as I can remember, <laughs> Um, do you, uh, do you remember our friend Keith? I remember. Yeah. He and I used to have a joke where we would describe the plot of different Ray Liotta movies <laughs> using the, as far back as I can remember, I always wanted to. And I think I like mine was as far back as I can remember. I always wanted to be trapped on a prison Island. <laughs> um, and, but then the one as far because, back as I can remember, I always wanted to eat my own brain. Right? The one, and I think this was particularly funny because I think the trailer for this came out while I, while we were freshmen in college and we were hanging out with Keith and Keith, Keith went, uh, as far back as I can remember, I always wanted to shoot at fish, <laughs> <laughs> which is just one moment from the trailer of heartbreakers. Um, anyway, that's not the point. Yeah. Uh, so what I've always tried to do is if someone mentions that they haven't seen a movie that I think is incredible, as much as there's a little voice in my head that goes, Oh my God, you should see it. Yeah. My outward reaction is, Oh, I think you'd like it. That's I what I try to you, do. I think you would like it. Yeah. That's first off. Like, I don't know. I mean, I, I love Nashville. I love citizen Kane. But I don't think most people would like them. <laughs> right. You get to Jaws. Okay, now I I think the vast majority of people would like it. Um, but the idea of like, oh, you've got, as opposed to like, you've got to see it. Yeah. Or I'm going to make you see it. That's a, that's a different thing. And I find myself thinking that a lot less as I get older. And either dealing with people of my age or older or younger, it's just, I think, you know, I think it's just silly to expect younger audiences who aren't even movie people and don't feel that desire to go back and see where certain things started or just engage with, with certain filmmakers or actors, whatever it is, they have no desire to do that. And I don't require them to have that desire. And especially if I'm teaching a damn journalism class, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and, and this actually speaks to like, so we, okay, I, I feel like for the most part, whether it be when you and I were at Southwest Missouri State or Columbia, and frankly, even when I was at UCLA. We went to Columbia College, Chicago. Yes, we, thank you. Not Ivy Leaguers. We oh, weren't hanging huh. out with Meadow Soprano and Noah and Eric Graney's character who pulled her hair out. Right. Uh, <laughs> or that person who had toilet paper sticking out of their ass. Oh, Eric Graney's character did, did not, not like that. that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, I feel like we mostly got pretty lucky with teachers who did not like kind of go off and do their own thing, you know, and just kind of just kind of pontificate or rant or whatever it was. I've, I know people that have had had student have teachers like that who clearly they have tenure and they, and they realize like I can do whatever I want. And I have a captive audience who has a vested interest in listening to me. I like, to me it's like, that's a, that's a terrible way of thinking. Um, and I do remember, and even this was relevant. We were in a geology class, and uh, it was taught by a guy named Tom Meglin. And I remember two <laughs> things. Two things. 
<laughs> the second this. one is what I'm going to say. Uh, well, I'll say the first thing. Okay. Which is, uh, there, it was a geology class and he was very anti-creationism, anti-old right. earth creationism. And apropos of nothing, except that it's a geology class, like two minutes in to a 50 minute period, he started railing against like creationism and it went all the way to the end, minute number fifty. And did I, was that? Did I skip that class? I think you were there. I, I don't, don't remember, remember that one. I might have been there by myself. Now that I think about it, yeah. But uh, in my mind, I was just like, "Well, I'm a creationist insofar as that I think the world was created. I don't think I'm a young Earth creationist, right. but like, uh, but like I, I am this." And and part of me was like, "I feel a little bit offended." And part of me, and I thought like, "Maybe I should raise my hand." And I thought, "No, yeah," because here's the thing we're not getting any homework after this. Like there's no way we're getting homework after this. So you know what? Let's just let this play out. And then I've got my evening free uh, to give you the idea. <laughs> my laziness absolutely trumped my uh, indignation. Um, yeah, I'm with you. Uh, but then the other thing, of course, uh, I don't even remember the specific context, but Meglin talked about how, how if you were to eat a certain thing, uh-huh. it would be like eating razor blades. And that's just ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you and I laughed so hard. Nobody, like he wasn't making a joke, yeah. but you and I just, we were of course in the very last row. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we were just laughing hysterically that he felt the need to specify. Well, that's just ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Um, but nonetheless, and so I do think, you know, that there are professors who realize like they have a tremendous amount of power and so they can assign someone to watch a movie for, for, and the movie has nothing to do with their class. Like yeah. that's, I think it's ridiculous. And I think it's a bit of a, a power trip, I think. And, right. Sure. And it's, and I, I myself, like it's when you have people that are listening to you and they have to, it is a temptation to like kind of go off and offer this opinion or that opinion. But, uh, so far I've done okay with it and I really want to not be that. And this is yeah. a nice inspiration to not be that. <laughs> there you go. All right. Uh, by whom is this episode brought to the, let's pay some bills is what I Indeed. say. The other thing is on the movie journal. Right. Uh, so this episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe. Every day, Mubi premieres a new film, whether it's a timeless classic, a cult favorite, or an acclaimed masterpiece, a movie you've been dying to see or one you've never heard of before. Uh, there are always 30 different films to discover. With Mubi, each and every film is hand-selected, so you'll never spend more time looking for something great to watch than actually watching something great. It's like your own personal film festival streaming anytime, anywhere. Currently available on Mubi is Blind Woman's Curse. Curse, a genre-bending Yakuza classic from 1970. Uh, as you might expect, uh, this is a major influence on the works of Quentin Tarantino, specifically the Kill Bill films. Um, it stars actress and singer uh, Miko Kaiji, and it is uh, her birthday. That is why they've uh, ah. uh, put this film up. Uh, her fierce presence is found in many of the best genre films of the 1960s and 70s. So you can check that out. Uh, it looks like a very intense, violent, bloody film. Again, not unsurprisingly, a big influence to uh, filmmakers these days. So uh, you can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash Battleship. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Battleship for a whole month of great cinema for free. And uh, I want to tell you about TweakedAudio.com. TweakedAudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. I would know because I use them each and every day, just as, as Tyler does. Uh, this week, I've been listening to a lot of Scott Walker, rest in peace. Mm. Um, uh, it's sort of... Uh, 
pop star type turned avant-garde musician who made uh, great music for uh, half a century um, passed away. You can, uh, if you like movies, which you probably do if you listen to this, you can watch a documentary about him from 2006 called Scott Walker, 30th Century Man. You could also check out the, he just recently did the score for Brady Corbett's Vox Lux mm. uh, that came out at the end of last year. Um, so yeah, I've been listening to a lot of Scott Walker. It's been very sad, but it's been uh, great. Sounded great listening to it on my tweakedaudio.com earbuds. They're available at a low, low price at tweakedaudio.com. But if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. There are a couple of other of other people that uh, have passed away. I'm sad to say that I am almost completely unfamiliar with the work of Larry Cohen, cult uh, filmmaker. But that's um, not true. Because you've seen Q. I've seen Q, the winged serpent. Uh, I saw that one, and I feel like there might be one other. But like, there are people that are just like diehard fans of yeah. him, and I and I, I'm not going to pretend to be that. And as with Scott Walker, there's a whole documentary about him called King Cohen, which That's I have right. not seen. Yeah. But uh, yeah, we should we should watch that. And then, but yeah, he also made um, uh, the stuff, which is not great, but it definitely did, has the, the stuff. Larry That's, Cohen yeah. sensibility. Yeah. He also made a really, I think, underrated movie called The Ambulance with um, Eric Roberts, I think. Um, And it's uh, uh, Eric Roberts plays a a, uh, an artist for Marvel Comics. Hmm. And there's and there's like an evil ambulance going around killing people. It's a really cool movie. It's a very Larry Cohen type of uh, type of deal. Um, Yeah. And then he would go on to do. uh, he wrote, went on to rewrite a lot of screenplays. Uh, like he wrote the screenplay for cellular, which is a movie yeah. that you and I both really like. Um, maybe the most recent thing I can remember that he, that I saw that he directed was a great episode from the first season of masters of horror, which was that showtime anthology. Right, right. And it was, I can't remember who the third guy was, but it was, uh, a very dark comedy in which Feruza Balk mm-hmm. was it Feruza Balk or was it Robin Tunney? I always get those two mixed up. I could see that they're not. They yeah. don't have a similar, but they they're like that they were similar. Of a but they were sort of famous yeah. around the same time. The same yeah. Time. So let's say it was Feruza Balk. Um, she's a, a a woman who's hitchhiking and. Um, unbeknownst to one another, two serial killers have pegged her as their next victim. One is Michael Moriarty, uh, who worked with him a lot, including in Q and one is a young guy whose name I can't remember. So it ends up becoming this sort of like Wiley Coyote roadrunner thing of these two serial killers trying to get to the, their victim first. Yeah. Uh, it's a, again, very dark, but very funny. There was always a tongue in cheek quality to his, his films. Um, uh, and then I did want to mention again, uh, someone whose work I'm mostly unfamiliar with, except his his iconic role in Day of the Dead, and that is Joe Pilato, um, who oh, played right. Captain Rhodes in Day of the Dead. Um, 
and uh, I was Facebook friends with him. Not that I ever like said anything, but it was his actual account and like he would post things and he just seemed like a very nice guy, uh, kind of a weird type, but uh, a good guy. And a lot of people don't like his performance in day of the dead. They think it's uh, over the top, which I think it is. But, um, but when you take the time to think about the nature of the character that he is under tremendous stress all the time, uh, it just kind of makes sense to have a character who's just perpetually on the edge. Um, and they give him this, these wonderful lines, uh, my favorite of which being, which he yells, you know, top of his lungs. He, he yells, I'm running this monkey farm, Frankenstein, and I want to know what the fuck you're doing with my time. And I just, and I remember like loving his, his completely just, uh, committed per, uh, delivery of that and just like that he says he just calls it a monkey farm uh and uh and yeah so he he died at a at, at age 70 a pretty young age and um and yeah like i said by all accounts he was a super nice guy really nice to his fans uh and that kind of thing so yeah some uh, some yeah. some big not big people but some like to certain audiences larry huge. cohen is yeah. definitely has a has a huge following yeah yeah, yeah. yeah so rest in peace to those fellas yeah all right, so uh, let's get into it, shall we? Indeed. There was something, something on your mind. You teased it on this week's movie journal. I did, yeah. So I watched this documentary, The Inventor. Uh, what is it? The Inventor. Out, Out for, for Blood, Blood in Silicon in Valley. Silicon Valley. Uh, directed by Alex Gibney. Uh, Alex Gibney makes a lot of documentaries. He, I mean, that's what he's a documentarian and he just cranks them out. Like it feels like he yes. does like three a year. I, I, honestly, I remember making a joke on Twitter a few years ago that like, Every once in a while, like an Alex Gibney movie must come out and he's like, Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and, uh, his films are, I mean, I, I don't know if I would say that his films are necessarily popular, but I know a lot of people that have, I mean, going clear was a, was a, a big one that mm-hmm. he made, but, um, but yeah, he's just, he's made so many, uh, he's very prolific. And a lot of people I know have seen, Without knowing that they're seeing an Alex Gibney film, they've seen his films. Like this Inventor film is actually doing, again, it's on HBO, but it was doing pretty well. It's pretty popular. I've seen a lot of people post and tweet about it. Yeah, me too. Um, and so it just got me thinking about like, but at the same time, he makes a very, the way he makes movies is very specific and it is the same from one movie to the next. I hate to say it, maybe that's one of the reasons why he can make movies so quickly is that he's not changing up his formula right. at all. Yeah. And he certainly isn't changing up his tone, which is always informative, but with, but it's always a little bit glib. Um, yeah, although I, I don't actually think he's the worst defender when it comes to... I no, think there are guys who... So. There, there are some things that are, are more that. Yeah, it definitely... His movies very much feel like info dumps. Yeah. Um, and there's also a certain thing of him i can think i feel like there are three i can think of at least two examples where he's started to make a movie about a certain person and realized that person was full of shit sure because there's a lance armstrong one which i didn't see uh which i forget what that was called yeah i don't recall uh then there's also the wikileaks one that was like Mm -hmm. oh make a movie about julian assange and then like in making it he was like oh this guy kind of sucks and so the movie becomes about how much julian assange sucks that's the thing is that i do think I, i mean understandably so like he makes I don't think I would want a documentary that is particularly fair to Scientology. Um, sure. But, uh, but at the same time, like 
it could be like the choice of like his use of a theremin, for example, in the going clear documentary. So uh-huh. like, uh, an instrument that is widely associated with a very specific type of science fiction yeah. uh, that suggests weird. Um, and then, but it's also the era of science fiction that Elrond Hubbard came out of. Sure. But he, but like, it's, if you wanted to, if you wanted to like kind of keep it in that part, section of the film that I understand. Okay. But it's, it's this larger thing. And by incorporating it, he's suggesting that like, this yeah, whole thing is just science is, fiction, which it is, but yeah. which it is, but also that there's a silliness to it and, and it, almost a campy type of silliness, but also a dangerous quality as well. Um, and then there's, there's a, a moment in the inventor where, uh, the, the characters themselves, I think the uh, characters, sorry, the people themselves, um, like, uh, MC hammers, you uh, can't touch this is like playing. And so, I'm sure if you're Alex Gibney, you're like, oh, I'm using that. Like, I'm not, I'm not just going to feature it in that, in this scene, which mm-hmm. is in which it is used. But like, and so of course it's smash cut to black. Can't touch this, uh, when the movie's over. And it's just that kind of thing that is always, that is, that always, I think keep, keeps us at kind of a distance and it just seems to be perpetually like judging. Yeah. His his films again, they're info dumps and and they're not false. But it yeah, does, I've learned a lot of things feel, from my Skippy movies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but it does feel like in his tone he's editorializing, and I and so it got me thinking about other documentaries that, in my opinion, as horrendous as some of the stuff in the Scientology documentary, you know, as horrendous as that is, his films are remarkably watchable. They go down real smooth. And it got me thinking about these other types of documentaries that I think in, in, as I was describing it to you, I described them as like pop documentaries. Yeah. And I don't know if other people have described them that way, but I think that's the way to describe them. Like these documentaries that are, are interesting, but, and there's no rule that a movie has to be challenging. Uh, but just at the same time, a lot of these films tackle information that is difficult to swallow and they make it very palatable either through a judgmental tone, which allows the Mm -hmm. audience to feel superior um, or just like cleaning it up and just making it or sanit or scrubbing it and making very sanitized, whatever it is. And I enjoy these documentaries, but I do, it just got me thinking about like the types of documentaries that fall into this category and what those directors are doing to allow that. So that was kind of the topic today. It's kind of broad. Yeah. Yeah. I found myself in like making a list of, of movies I wanted to talk about trying to get away from just making a list of like 21st century documentaries that I don't like. (laughs) You know what I mean? Right. Because I do think there's something very specific in what you're talking about because it has become a cottage industry of its own. Netflix, Mm -hmm. I think uh, is full of them and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Some of them are good. Mm -hmm. Like I think we'll talk about, um, and I'm drawing a blank. He just made the, the love me when I'm dead and won't you be my neighbor. What is that guy's name? Morgan Neville. Morgan Neville. Yeah. I think he's doing a lot of the same stuff, mm-hmm. but I think he's one of the guys who's good at it. But I think the thing that separates to me, what you're talking about from other, maybe higher brow documentaries sure. is I think you're talking about documentaries that the filmmaker went in with a story in mind. Which is why things like the Julian Assange thing or the Lance Armstrong thing, which again, I didn't see, um, are more interesting to me because it's changed Mm -hmm. over time. But um, if you look at 
you know, one of the documentaries from the past decade or so was a huge hit as far as documentaries go. I even mostly liked it. I think I wrote a positive review of it and most yeah. people I know liked it, but I've always had a little bit of problem with searching for sugar man. Oh, which, yeah. And I didn't say it. Uh, I mean, the, uh, Rodriguez's music is amazing and it's all throughout the music, the, the movie. You can't deny that it's a great story too. It's a good yarn, but I also, I keep thinking about how, well, when, when they were making the movie, they had all of this information so the fact that we're only getting things at 30 minute, 45 minute, 60 minute intervals yeah. is there's something, but then also that's how stories are told. It doesn't bother me in other, but there's something that keeps me from fully embracing something that feels so schematic. Well, and I do, I, I, I think for me, okay, this is, I feel like I'm going to have to kind of walk a fine line here, which is, um, why is everything a story? Like stories are very easy to digest, even if the story is, is difficult. And a story is something that we understand that we, when we're watching a narrative film, it's usually story driven mm-hmm. uh, and character driven. Um, but like, Oh, this, this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And even as we talk about a story, we're telling a story. It's a story. And which means it's usually past tense. Mm-hmm. So that, so in a documentary that allows us to get talking heads speaking in retrospect. Um, and it allows us to think about things that have already happened. And it's nice to get the information. Um, and the story is often very interesting, but I feel like it feels for lack of a better term, safer to put something in a story is to make it safer and to, and to take real life and cram it into, into an, a, a 90 to a hundred minute story, I think is to maybe not do complete justice to either the story you're trying to tell or the person you're trying to, uh, provide a, a portrait of, or this topic you're trying to explore. So like, I think of a movie like hoop dreams, mm-hmm. which Granted, they shot over eight years. I don't require every documentary to do that, yeah. but they don't know the story they're telling mm-hmm. because it's still happening. And that sense of immediacy, yeah. I think, is one of the things that makes that film so good. And what I've seen of the Maisels brothers, like they would do that. It was all right now. There is no retrospect. There's no 2020 hindsight. Like it's all right, right now. And yes, of course, they're still constructing it and through editing, but I think there's a, a huge difference between these types of talking head documentaries. And I, I do now that I think about it, I love, um, three identical strangers, which is very much this, but yeah. I think they capture with each new revelation. They, they, you, you don't feel safe and you certainly okay. don't know what's going to happen next. I, I liked the identical strangers, but I think like with searching for sugar man, I think I have some of the same reservations sure. about, uh, about how planned out it is. And then there are other movies. This one I feel bad about because the story is so upsetting and had a huge effect on me as it does with most, most people. But dear Zachary is kind of the same thing to have this huge gut punch ending yeah. and ending and be like, it's almost weird that you treated this as just like a story, yeah. like that you kept this from us for the entire movie. Right. Like, yeah, it made it very impactful and I'll never forget how devastating dear Zachary is as a movie, yeah. but it also like in retrospect, it's weird that you did that. <laughs> it's, it's tough. Cause something that I've, I've 
taken to saying to my students is that like all films are manipulation. Mm. If a person's manipulative, that's bad, but art by its very nature and film especially is going to be manipulative. That's the way it is. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. Um, but the question is like, what are they trying to, are they trying to manipulate my emotions or my intellect or all of the above? And how are they going to do that? And to what end? And, you know, if it's a situation where they're trying to replicate what it must have been like to experience like, Oh my gosh, now there's this and now there's that. I can understand that a little bit more. Uh, and I think dear Zachary is, is like that in, in that regard. Um, but it does <sighs> compare dear Zachary to capturing the Freedmans. Mm-hmm. capturing the Freedmans. Now, granted some of the footage is stuff that the director didn't take, but that's something that doesn't feel safe it feels i keep coming back to this word immediacy like i think that's what a documentary can provide absolutely is this sense of immediacy and boy capturing the freedman's has it in spades you don't want it to but it does i think i think you're you're really getting at something there with the with the way that the there's something that seems a little bit lesser about movies that seem like they're already all boxed up from the beginning yeah Uh, and yet and yet they're very popular. <laughs> you know what I mean? Of course. I mean, a lot of bad shit is popular, uh, yeah. but, um, it makes me feel like a snob sometimes because on the one hand, I feel like I should be happy that people like documentaries. It's, you know, traditionally a less respected form of filmmaking. And the fact yeah. that there's been this rash of them or this, this rash is a bad word. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been a wave of them over the past 10 to 15 years. Yeah. Um, uh, I should, I should be celebrating that. And yet, uh, because I can't ever be happy with anything, uh, I, I'm always like, no, you should watch mining the gap. You should watch. Yeah. There's uh, one that feels. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And people did watch mining the gap. Um, people didn't watch the John McEnroe in the realm, in the realm of perfection. Yeah. That is realm is a tough word for me, especially mid sentence in the realm in the realm. Yeah. Well, when I'm in the middle of talking, I, I, I keep stumbling over it. I've noticed it for six months. And as long as I've been talking about that movie, every time I've said it, <laughs> did you I'm like in the like, realm. Did you like, ever think like, well, that's getting out of my top 10. Cause I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to put myself through that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, yeah. I also feel like a snob saying this because there's nothing wrong with these movies being popular, but it does. Okay here's where the cynicism's really going to kick in and I'm relying on you to correct me. Uh-huh. Documentaries are cheaper to make than narrative <laughs> films. And so maybe somebody hears this true story and they think, well, I can't afford, I can't sell some, a, a studio on this, but if it's a document documentary where I just get the participation of the people involved, like I can, I can package it and I can, and I can, uh, manipulate and I can just turn it into, like you said, just like this prepackaged little, put it mm-hmm. in this box and present it and <clears throat> it will be, but I'm going to present, I'm going to have it unfold as though it were a, a, a narrative film. And what often happens, like I know that, uh, I, sorry, I don't know. I'd heard the three identical strangers is now going to be made into a narrative film. Yeah. They said that about the King of Kong too, and it never happened. Well, <laughs> I guess that makes sense yeah. uh, to the, a point. The King of Kong is already, 
I, like I said, some of these, even though if I, I even if I'm fr- uh, skeptical about the format, like mm-hmm. I can't deny the King of Kong. It's so much fun. Yeah, that's the thing is like these aren't bad movies. Some of them are, but yeah, most some of them are. are. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <clears throat> and so I don't want people to think that I'm judging them or or judging the people that like them. I often like them, um, but it is interesting just to see the the. We kind of talked about this years ago. We talked about what the human interest documentary. Yeah, is that, is I had to, I had to look it? that up. That was like exactly six years ago. Okay, so it was March of 2013. Yeah, and at the time that those were kind of a, a big thing, and I feel like they've only gotten bigger since then uh, with the yeah. rise. Because six years ago, like Netflix was still around, as was Hulu and that, and that sort of thing. But now, I mean, to me, like when you have. Netflix and Hulu both releasing a documentary about the fire festival yeah. within a month of each other. Like that's when, you know, I think that might be critical mass. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's more just something that I wanted to explore. Like what is the nature of these films and are they, Oh boy, are they inherently less effective for us because they feel so pre-made yeah absolutely they are i mean there's a lot of fun to be had with something like the king of kong and there's a lot of power to be found in something like dear zachary but i'm going to prefer the immediacy of something yeah um yeah i'm using your word something like mind in the gap or um like the overnighters did you ever see the overnighters it's like so up your alley i didn't Yeah, yeah i i wanted to um or um and then there's uh, I feel like another thing we've seen increasingly in like more of the art film world is the sort of, is this a documentary type of okay. <laughs> thing? Like uh, one of my favorite movies I talked on the, uh, on the, um, on the movie journal this week, I mentioned some of what I think will make my list of the best movies of the decade. One that's a contender is a Polish movie called all these sleepless nights mm-hmm. in which the, basically the filmmaker just like followed around this, like, I say kid. He was like probably college age, uh, Warsaw dude for like a summer Mm -hmm. and didn't follow him around to like his job or anything important. Just like him meeting up with girls or going to dance parties or drinking with friends. It was just just like, there's no story. It's just him hanging out with friends. And it's like, I guess it's a documentary. Uh, you are documenting something. Yeah. yeah, But it's one of the best movies of the past 10 years for me. Um, and there's a, uh, I feel like it's not a coincidence that I haven't been to this festival, but the true false film festival every year, mm-hmm. I hear more and more about how great it is. And I love that it's in Columbia, Missouri. Um, yeah, a friend of the show, Jason Eakin went many years ago when he really? still lived in Missouri. Uh, yeah, well, it's become a huge thing <clears throat> now. Um, and, uh, it's, I don't think the true false film festival has an actual rule against, talking heads in movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't mean David Byrne, Tina Weymouth, right, yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, Jerry Harrison. Fact, that's and Chris actually like, uh, you know, no. you get extra points. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, uh, but they're, they, the, the documentaries that play true false tend to be not those kind of documentaries. So maybe this is yeah. like the resistance to this kind of growing, growing or this thing that has grown and metastasized over the past. I don't know if we blame Michael Moore. I don't know who we blame for documentaries being too enjoyable. (laughs) And that's the thing is like, it's, I, it's, it, this comes back to like me feeling like a snob, like 
there's nothing wrong with a documentary that is fun or enjoyable, but I do feel like just the, you can't approach documentary exactly the same as yeah. you can with narrative film. Like it is doing something a little bit different. And in that, it tends to be more naturally uncomfortable. I don't know. And so if somebody yeah. tries to make that not the case, it's like they're, it feels like they're trying to sanitize real life and make it more like a movie. Uh, yeah. And, and I, I think, um, there are exceptions. Obviously I think, uh, one of our greatest living documentarians is Werner Herzog. Mm. And yet he makes movies that to go back to our old episode could very be considered very much be considered on their face. These human interest yeah. documentaries. This one's about the oldest cave paintings in the world. This is, I'm going to follow around people who like to get really close to volcanoes, yeah. but he is always looking for something more cosmic in, right. in them. You know, the, uh, that Antarctica one encounters in the end of the world. I love yeah. that movie. Uh, but then sometimes he stumbles too. I feel like lo and behold, the one about the internet was I feel uh, like a little thin. Big, it wasn't big enough. Like, yeah. I feel like, I yeah. feel like that should have been a mini series by Werner Herzog. Yeah. Except you saw, you saw lo and behold. Yeah. It has one of my favorite lo and behold lines when Elon Musk says, he's talking about colonies in the moon the, or colonies in Mars, mm-hmm. I think. And he's like, well, it's hard to get people to volunteer for a, a lifetime commitment like that. And with no hesitation, Werner Herzog goes, I'll go. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> did, did Elon Musk know he was setting himself? No, up? I don't think I don't so. Think so. Uh, I do remember that, and I laughed very hard yeah. at that. Now, where do you <laughs> tell me if I'm changing the subject okay. or if this still fits? Because okay. I feel like the other, the newer scourge, um, is the essentially the great man slash great woman biopic puff piece documentary. And I haven't seen very many of them. You've seen more than I have, but because I they're like almost they unavoidable now. It seems yeah. like, uh, last, just last year we had RBG mm-hmm. and Quincy right. and seeing all red. Um, that's right. And I still like the title of, uh, sure, sure. <laughs> everyone, everyone who hosts battleship pretension likes a good pun. <laughs> um, uh, I'm trying to think what other ones there were. Uh, I don't know. There's a bunch of them, but, um, uh, do you, is, is that in, in keeping with what you're talking about I here? Think, I, I think so. Um, because those are also movies where they go in saying, I am going to proselytize about how great this person is. Right. This person had such an interesting life and I'm going to tell you all about it. Yeah. Um, and there's nothing really uncovered, about the subject usually, yeah, you know, um, I mean, sometimes like, obviously I think Errol Morris, like with the fog of war can do that by actually interviewing. Yeah. Um, what's his name? Robert McNamara. Or, yeah. Robert McNamara. Um, and then sometimes the access to the footage, like with, uh, I can't remember the director's name, uh, something Capadia who made Amy, the Amy Winehouse documentary, right. yeah, yeah. just, just the, the candidness and the intimacy of that footage that he got is, yeah. it, it brings something new that you wouldn't yeah. have. Uh, and something with fog of uh, like fog of war, someone could say it's like, well, that's it's one talking head and it's all in retrospect. It's like, that's not the story. The story actually isn't the life of Robert McNamara. The story is watching Robert McNamara reflect on his life. Yeah. Yeah. What, what he's feeling about it right now. Yeah. So I think that, so I do feel like it's a little bit different. Yeah. And of course the way Errol Morris, there's a name for the little invention he came up with. I don't remember. It's the, the 
Interatron or something, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the um, other thing I like about Fog of War is it has that one fill of glass on that goes. I I really like his Fog of War score, but yes, I know what you mean. Yeah, it's that's the thing is in in using a term like pop documentary, you can you can incorporate a lot into that. I do think maybe that it's a very large like umbrella term under which you can put freaking March of the Penguins, you know, uh, which, which I never saw or free solo or like kind of these big Epic. I mean, I was saying before, like, well, documentaries are pretty cheap. Those weren't, uh, mm-hmm. those couldn't possibly have been, uh, uh, inexpensive, but they also had funding from like larger companies and that kind of thing. And documentaries tend not to, but, um, but yeah, yeah I, nature documentaries is a different thing altogether. Yeah. Um, to me and I tend to like them you know I even like like the Disney nature ones that you I always hate so <laughs> because that's one oh here we go because you're talking about imposing narrative that's yeah yeah and it, and after what I'm like, saying I guess what I'm saying is when it comes to like cute animals I'm gonna be imposing narratives anyway I'm gonna say oh that one's in love with that one and that's the mom and there's the, like I'm gonna be making up all these stories yeah I guess <laughs> so. animals are just cute but what bothers me is when it's just like oh here's these monkeys and they you know they're on the top of the trees and they lord it over it's like they're fucking monkeys <laughs> all right don't turn this into a, don't turn it into like an Occupy Wall Street rally <laughs> just let it be let it be nature it's fine yeah don't judge the animals like it's really bothers me so much. Um, Uh, I I think, I think it's fun. Um, and, uh, but, uh, nature documentaries have, uh, found in the, in the, over the past, well, I guess 20 years or so. And really forever, they've been a staple of television, but I feel like, I don't know if it's been camera advancement or more funding, but the, like Mm -hmm. the planet earth and life and all those things, um, is amazing. There was one. I think a lot of it might have to do with the, the fact that IMAX became mm-hmm. more than just a screen at a museum. Like IMAX became yeah. integrated with mainstream filmmaking. Yeah. But I do miss going to like the real IMAX. Yeah. When you and, you and I went and saw Shackleton's Shackleton. Antarctic adventure and I was yeah. like, adventure. Don't you mean hell? I think you mean <laughs> yeah. hell. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, that was cool. I went and, uh, my wife and I went a couple of years ago to see the Terrence, Terrence Malick one that played mm-hmm. at the, at the science center here. Um, but yeah, it's rare. I get to see like narrative movies in real IMAX. Yeah. I did get to go to, to IMAX to see Blade Runner 2049. That was cool. That, oh boy. That was very cool. That was great. Um, but uh, we're off track. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. I do. I'm I'm perfectly comfortable comfortable in this conversation. Just taking like nature documentaries and just pushing yeah. them to the side. Okay, so they're very popular. They make money. Yeah, but that's not what we're talking about here. Because you're talking about something that is uh, there's something intellectually disingenuous about the movies you're talking about, even when we like them. Because sometimes yeah, we okay, do. Yes, okay. you know. Because sometimes. You know, we want to be lied to, mm-hmm. you know, uh, is it a lie, though? or manipulated or whatever. Manipulated. I mean, sometimes okay. it is a lie. Sure. Uh, you know, a lot, and that, that, well, that brings me to another subcategory, which is the issue adv- advocacy documentary, sure. which some people would just say, oh, you mean propaganda? <laughs> um, uh, and 
they're not necessarily a one-to-one, but I think anytime a movie exists to advocate for a particular issue, even if it's something I agree with, I tend to take it with a little bit of a grain of salt, you know, because I I know that things are probably being left out. I feel like I'm, because I am, there's certain things I generally tend to avoid, and I know you have been trying to avoid doing the same thing. You're worse at it than I am, but I, t- I try to avoid seeking out things I know are going to piss me off. Yeah. But I am a glutton for punishment because it's a, I think it's a, it's an issue that means a lot to me that you and I are on different sides on, I think, but I tend to watch about every abortion documentary that comes out every year. Ugh. Um, and, uh, yeah, those can one be, way or another, that sounds very intense. Uh, they are. And, but, uh, it's a, um, I'm very, very uh strongly pro-choice and so i tend to let myself get riled up but even then i'm still able to i think i'm able to recognize when something is the movie is being disingenuous to me and i also think because i grew up in the catholic church around people who were very strongly pro-life i also think i'm able to recognize when a movie is being fair to the other side uh, and I do want to recommend one called uh, Abortion Stories Women Tell, mm-hmm. which has the weirdly uncommon, but you'd think it would be common, approach of literally on both sides of the issue, mm-hmm. only interviewing women. Yeah, that's it's, the... It's, it's really fascinating. Yeah, it's... And I guess, I guess at this point, yeah, we can talk a little bit about Michael Moore because he's quite possibly the most successful financially documentarian that there's ever been. Right. I mean, I know that, I know that like supersize me did well, but that's like a one-off. Yeah. What's that guy's name? Morgan Spurlock. Why are there two Morgans? There's a Neville and a Spurlock. I don't know. Too many Morgans. Too many. (laughs) Uh, but yeah, I mean, Roger and me did very well. And then bowling for Columbine made a lot of money and won an Oscar. You You skipped over the big one. Yeah, I know, but it, that one—it was very minor. The big yeah. one was basically he was already on a. It was stop making it cheap. He was yeah. on a book tour, and yeah. so he decided to bring a camera with him yeah. and basically try to do a mini Roger and Me in every city. Every city that had a corporate headquarters, yeah. he'd go try and talk to the the CEO. Uh, big the big one is very funny. That honestly, I think that one is maybe my favorite, simply because all all of his other films are so directed at one issue or one person, whatever it is. Um, sorry, that's not true. I haven't seen capitalism, a love story. I haven't seen, I haven't seen capitalism. Where to forget about that. Yeah. Where to invade next is not, it has, which is one that I tend to like. That sounds for the most part to the big one. It, yeah. Cause it's, let's go to a different country and figure out what social issue, economic issue, whatever, yeah is working well for them that isn't working in the U S and let's, and his jokey premise is let's steal it. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't really get to say that, but, right. um, uh, yeah, that is more like the big one. Maybe, yeah, maybe that's why I like, I liked where to invade next. Yeah. I didn't hate Fahrenheit 11, nine, but that is one that is that's right. I keep forgetting about that. Fahrenheit 11, nine is all over the place in a not very good way. It almost felt like, he didn't have enough material to make the anti-Trump documentary he wanted to make. Right. So it becomes for like a third of the movie uh, about the Flint water crisis. And it's like, you could have made that movie. Like why are yeah. these both one movie? It, you know, he tries to tie it together with like the, uh, 
the governor of Michigan being like a proto Trump type of like, you know, business to politics, no political experience type of figure, but it's, it's a tenuous connection. Fahrenheit 11, nine is, uh, it's good in pieces, but less than the sum of its parts. Well, and that's a, so. Let's get back to this idea of immediacy. It sounds like it sounds like he rushed into that one, like so eager to make it to capture. Well, he came up with that title. I know. It's <laughs> like you start there, and you're like, "Well, I have to do it now." Yeah. yeah. Uh, and you know what? I would agree with him. I love that. I mean, it's just handed to you. Yeah. Um, but it. But yeah, like I think. That having not seen the film, but having heard other people talk about it, it feels like he was so eager to capture this moment that, you know, that's the thing is immediacy, uh, having a tone of immediacy in the film itself is one thing, but that doesn't mean that that's how you should necessarily approach the making of it. Uh, you know, you still need to have a lot of material. Um, mm-hmm. And I do think that the, the, Okay, I have quoted this so much, uh, it has become like, it's the simplest thing, and yet, to me, it it makes the most sense precisely because it is so simple, and it's it's, uh, comedians in cars getting coffee, Joel Hodgson and Jerry Seinfeld go to 1950s diner, and Jerry Seinfeld says, like, it's another 50s diner, why are these popping up, like, and he goes, why are we always looking back? And then Joel Hodgson says, because when you look back, you know what you're going to say. Mm-hmm. And just the very, the very, like, it's not merely, you know what to think <clears throat> it's, you know what you're going to say. You're going to say the thing that, you know, everyone wants to hear. And that's the thing is uh, when you lack the immediacy or when you're saying, when you're dealing with kind of these, for lack of a better term, propaganda films, like, you know what you, you know what you're going to say and you know that you're going to appeal to at least half the population uh, <laughs> and that you're going to, you're going to be safe. And, th- and when you see the film and you know, like if you're, if you're in sympathy with Michael Moore uh, and you see one of his movies, you know that you're going to feel pretty safe for the most part. It's not going to come at you ever. Um, and, and I think so many of these to make the, to make it the larger point. So many of these films, because they tend to be, you know, uh, looking back at one person or a time or a movement or whatever it is, um, they know what they're going to say. The audience knows what they're going to say. And that, that is popular. It's popular to just be affirmed, not necessarily in your politics, but just in the way, like, I know I like Quincy Jones. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to go see this movie. I know I know I respect Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I'm going to see this movie. Hey, son of a bitch. Yeah. I'm right, you know. Yeah. Um and I don't mean to say that it's it's the people like being pandered to, but people like know it's the same reason that sequels are popular or reboots because people like knowing what they're going to get when they go to see a movie. Yeah. Um all right, we should wrap up pretty soon. We're going almost an hour. Okay. Um, but cause there's a couple other things I wanted to mention. I feel like I've, I've hijacked the topic from you, That's but, fine. um, it's fine. Uh, I'm reminded of a line from, uh, uh, the most recent season of Silicon Valley. Okay. Where, um, Zach Wood's character, what's his name? Jared. Jared. Uh, Donald. Donald. That's right. This is real name. <laughs> is talking about Al Gore and, and, uh, and he, 
makes a reference to now he makes apocalypse porn <laughs> and it's funny but also like there is a whole like after an inconvenient truth there is a whole subgenre sure. of documentaries about climate change that are basically like it's like 90 minutes of everything's awful everything's dying and then there's a card at the end that says go to this website to help yeah uh and they're upsetting to me the, and the, my least favorite one was one called chasing coral um oh that's because there was chasing ice, which not was not right. bad. Okay, and then chasing coral, they were like, "Oh, let's." Because chasing ice was about the glaciers disappearing, and then chasing coral is about the coral dying, which is a very upsetting thing. But it also kind of like Fahrenheit eleven nine and Michael Moore seemed like he didn't have enough material to make the documentary he set out to make. Like more than half of chasing coral is like a documentary about them making chasing coral okay it's it's like it's weird that it's like a 90 minute movie and so much of it is about like here's the cameras we had to use yeah. and then our cameraman quit we had to get a different cameraman through. it's like it's uh, I tend, I really actually weird kind of appreciate that but to me like if it obscures what the topic is then that's mm-hmm. a different thing but like there is a movie okay yeah Boy, I wish it wasn't called that, but I wish, but there's a movie called Michael Moore hates America. Uh-huh. Okay. Not a bad documentary, actually. Um, the director is, you know, he's sort of, I think it was after, I think it was after, um, Fahrenheit nine 11. Um, but it might've been Bowling for Columbine. I think it was Fahrenheit nine 11 where this guy wants to make this film, sort of documenting like documenting like the the America that Michael Moore would have you believe isn't exist it doesn't exist you know whatever but in doing so he also winds up realize but this guy had never made a documentary before and so as he does he finds himself falling into many of the same traps mm. that he condemns Michael Moore for as far as like asking a very specific question or like a leading question or making a certain cut or not giving everybody the information that they need to answer a question, whatever it is. Um, he interviews Albert Mazels. He interviews oddly enough, Pendulette. Um, but there comes a moment when, and God, you know, God bless him for actually a lot for filming this mm-hmm. where his producer is confronting him and he says, you know, the last person you interviewed, you didn't tell them the name of the documentary. Why did you not do that? And the guy's like, well, cause I thought they wouldn't talk to me. He goes, so you, you manipulated them so that they would give you what you needed. Uh-huh. And he goes, how is that any different? And so like, that's great. It was great. Like I, and, and hats off to the guy, even though I think like his, so much of the film, like the intentions were so like cheesy and like, you know, in maybe not necessarily jingoistic, but just kind of a little, uh, rose colored glasses kind of thing. But, but I appreciate his willingness to say like, okay, I get it. This is when you make films, especially documentaries, boy, it's easy to fall into this. Um, so like that's an instance where the film started as one thing and then became this immediate, it achieved this immediacy that was, so much more about Michael Moore than this guy ever anticipated. Mm. And I feel like free solo is similar where of course, like you need to talk a little bit about how this thing's going to be filmed because you don't want to accidentally, uh, knock a camera into this guy's head. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Um, uh, I do need to see free solo, but you reminded me of another one. Um, uh, in, in terms of the, the movie changing, 
so there's a movie that started off I'm going to do a long lead up started off being something dumb ended up being something, something really fascinating because they stumbled into something fascinating mm-hmm. but the filmmakers ego I think wouldn't let them fully abandon the yeah. dumb gimmicky premise yeah. so did you see Icarus no but I heard great things about it it's overlong because it has this whole the, did it win the Oscar I think it did oh maybe it did I can't remember um, but the premise is this guy was going to like uh, race the Tour de France or something like that mm-hmm. while doping and beat the drug tests to prove that the drug tests weren't yeah. effective. That's That was the premise. And then in doing so, he ended up uncovering the Russian doping like mechanism and scandal. Yeah. And, but the movie, the first, the movie is like at least half an hour longer than it needs to be because it still has this whole thing at the beginning about like him learning how to pass the test. Like, I feel like if he were a more pure documentarian, he would have been able to, and I understand it's probably difficult to cut the thing that, you know, cause right. it's something you love, but, uh, I think he would have understood that, uh, the movie just has this weird, like appendage at the beginning and then the movie starts. Is uh, it an, in, is it a situation where he's, he's interested in like showing that like by investigating this one, not even investigating, but exploring this one thing and it opens up this, like he does, it, it feels like the, no, because it feels like two separate stories. Like the okay. one, the, it's the guy he met to help him, like beat the drug test right. that ends up. So obviously, some reference needed to be made into like uh, to, toward like here's how I came yeah. to meet this guy. But the fact that we're like we're starting to like because uh, uh, the movie at one point becomes a little bifurcated. Where we're starting to go down these really fascinating paths, and then it's like so then on the third day of the tour, it's like, I don't care anymore. <laughs> we have moved on to, yeah. like, to oh, another thing. Yeah, if we had if. If you've moved on to the larger thing now, yeah, and return back to the other things, like I, you, I'm sorry, you, you're trying to bury your lead here, yeah. and and um, and then another example, uh, another movie. I forgot to mention who I was talking about. The like puff pieces, and I was talking about them being about people, mm-hmm. but there was one I can't believe I forgot to mention because it's about a place. Okay, right in this neighborhood, it's a documentary called Sound City. Oh, that's which true. I don't know yeah. if you know that you live near a recording studio where many, many classic albums were recorded. Um, no, is it next to the Dr. Hockley Wobblies? <laughs> no, uh, it's not far from there. Okay. It's kind of like back behind the Holiday Inn Express. Oh, um, over there. So it is really close to you. Yeah. Okay. Um, I have always been curious about like, I mean, it's what not that there little, anymore. Yeah. But, but like yeah. it's, that's just kind of a weird little industrial area that's yeah. just sort of tucked away. Yeah. And that's what yeah. this was. I think that's like kind of, this was a, a recording uh, studio called sound city. It's not there anymore. I think there's just still a sign up or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of great albums are made there. And I think part of the idea was like, yeah, it's Los Angeles, but it's like, uh, it's not near anything, you know, like you're saying, it's a little industrial area. People could just like sort of batten down the hatches and get to work yeah. making their album. But the documentary is just like, a hundred minutes of like Dave Grohl or whatever going, Oh man, that soundboard. And like, Oh man, we went over to the, they do reference the Budweiser factory, which is funny. Yeah. Um, cause I don't know. Yeah. Uh, we're getting a little specific of where you live, but you live near a Budweiser factory and to, every once in a while I'll come here. And today was one of those days. I don't know if you were, out, you were outside, mm-hmm. uh, where your entire neighborhood smells like bread. Oh yes. Which is something that happens when you li- apparently live near a, uh, uh, a brewery. Yeah. 
Um, anyway, so yeah, Sound City is just like, it's all these great musicians that I love, all these albums that I love yeah. are made there, but it's just a hundred minutes of, God, that was awesome. That was so good. Yeah, and and there does, and with something like that, I mean, I guess there's just, you know, there are films that maybe they're not interested in, they're not interested in investigating or exploring, but celebrating. And that's not necessarily, there's not necessarily anything wrong with that, but I don't think it's going to be that compelling. Yes. Yeah. You know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far as say like, Oh, it's, you know, masturbatory or whatever, but it's just like, all right, if you like this thing, you're going to keep liking it. Um, but yeah, so it's, uh, yeah, the, the Alex Gibney film like really sparked this for me because, we live in a, I won't say golden age because that implies that like there's a lot of great things happening, but we do live in this age of, I don't know, maybe there's, there, maybe there's always been this many documentaries, but I don't think so. But I, I think the digital thing helped yeah, and, and I feel so like, many outlets. We live in an age where it's not preposterous to recommend a documentary to a person yeah. who's not necessarily a documentary person. Like people, yeah. you can say, Oh, have you seen this documentary? And people will, whereas I feel like when we were like teenagers, anyone would have been like, Oh, I'm not gonna watch a documentary. Yeah. <laughs> and they have someone's life. <laughs> I gonna yeah. sit there and be, yeah. uh, taught or whatever. But, uh, yeah, so we have gotten to an age where documentaries are, and certainly documentary series, mostly about sure. murderers sure. on Netflix, like making a murderer, making a murderer to, uh, the Ted Bundy tapes. Right. Uh, yeah. The, more the staircase, which is, maybe right. about a murder maybe not have you watched the staircase no it, it comes it's really well made and it comes from like before this boom a little mm-hmm. bit i guess it's about the era of like paradise lost yeah which is also really good um uh but yeah the staircase is fascinating because it's like well, what was the one with the uh, robert durst what was, that, what was that one called the jinx the jinx yeah because it's about a fascinating guy yeah yeah it's uh all the more reason why uh american vandal is something that everybody should mm-hmm. watch because it's spot on uh tonally hits those um yeah and there are there are other examples of this there are movies that there are documentaries that are also kind of sort of transcend that i feel like exit through the gift shop is an example yeah where it's a documentary and other things yeah that's a great one um, but it's but it's also I would, extremely watchable and i say that like it's a bad thing it's not a bad thing no yeah um i would also recommend with a word of warning that it's uh sometimes upsetting not only in subject matter but also in its glibness uh casting jean benet to make a darkly comic yeah. meta documentary about the murder of a child is a weird gamble. I think it works, yeah. but I also would fully understand why someone's like, I'm not watching that. I was curious about it. And then when you were talking about it, I was like, ah, maybe I don't want to <laughs> yeah. watch this, but, um, and then, yeah, it's, I'm trying to think of, of others. I mean, obviously I'm a big fan of, uh, the act of killing and all that, but I, I, I yeah, I tend to think more in terms of, films that are in English. Uh, that's what I mean by like, you know, pop is like, they're popular, mm-hmm. but people can watch. That's the other thing is like people, maybe because many of them are, are streaming, but people can watch them casually. And again, 
that is not a crime at all. That's yeah. there's nothing wrong with that. But it tend like I, I love movies. There are a lot of movies I love that you can watch that you can just throw on at any moment. But at the same time, I feel like they tend not to be like the the height of the medium. But uh, it goes back to something you and I talk when we talk about trailers for movies. In that the difference between people like you and me and probably our listeners who watch movies all the time mm-hmm. and the people who don't watch movies all the time is that those the latter camp often want to know what they're getting into, yeah. which you and I cherish the opposite. Yeah. Um, and so that's why I mentioned stuff like casting Joe Manet that like threw me for a loop. Another one from a few years ago, it's called Gleason. It was a documentary about a, um, about Paul Gleason, obviously. Uh, no, <laughs> uh, uh, no, it was about, um, uh, an athlete who had, uh, God, now I'm forgetting it, like cystic fibrosis or multiple sclerosis maybe. Mm-hmm. And so it seemed like it was going to be a pretty like standard, like story of like, you know, an inspirational story of, of perseverance and stuff like that. Uh, and it kind of stealthily is actually a documentary about marriage mm. because you see like just what a toll, this takes on his relationship with his wife. They clearly yeah. love each other, but they also like, you know, you know, being married to someone means it's one thing to say in sickness and in health. Yeah. It's another thing to be like, Oh, I have to do everything for this person. Yeah. Um, it's a, Gleason's a really fascinating documentary that still delivers on the first thing. Mm-hmm. If you're just there to see an inspirational story about this, yeah. uh, a- athlete fighting against the disease and starting a charity. It's a big part yeah. of it. He starts a charity ends up doing a lot of great things for a lot of people. Um, but it's also a portrait of marriage. And I think, you know what? I think you've actually touched on something and going back to, to Icarus, which is the thing about the, the nature of a documentary is that you are attempting to capture the complexity of real life. Like there's a reason you're doing that as opposed to writing it into a script. I saw devil's knot. Devil's oh, right. Knot is a, is a narrative directed by Adam McGoyan. And I think it's shot in a really good yeah, way. But what was the last good movie he made? It's been a while. Yeah. Um, but it, it looks really, it looks really good and the acting is fine, but it just feels so small and self-contained and, and again, di- easily digestible as opposed to the paradise lost, trilogy at this which i've only ever seen the first one yeah me too and i saw west of memphis which is by right, the see that one amy berg is that her name she did deliver us from evil uh, yeah oh, west boy. of memphis is basically like a movie that distills the three paradise doc paradise lost documentaries yeah and is also about the paradise lost documentaries at some point yeah into like a single two hour and 20 minute movie yeah and and at least yeah and that's at least like a, a solid length yeah. you know <laughs> um but i do think that uh that where these documentaries can go wrong and why they maybe aren't as artistically or emotionally or intellectually as satisfying as maybe they could be is because they do have this one thing in mind. Like I'm telling this story because this person did this thing. Never mind the other thing they did or the people they affected or whatever it is. It's, I'm telling a story about Ruth Bader Ginsburg because, you know, and I didn't see mm-hmm. the movie you did, but like, because I respect as a, because as a woman, she's this and this and this, like not really interested in all the other elements of being a person and how that impacts her. Uh, so much so is like, 
she, I see her this one way. And like you said with Icarus, like I had this thing in mind and that a much more interesting thing came along, but you know what? I still insist <laughs> yeah. on this being my thing. And so with this Gleason documentary that you're talking about, it does achieve what it was trying to do while also recognizing that we are showing real life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If this were, if it were a, if they had decided to, to make it a, a, a written narrative, they probably wouldn't incorporate that stuff or they would to a certain extent so that somebody can get, you know, so that the uh, wife can get a best supporting actress nomination. Um, <laughs> but beyond that, like that's kind of it. Whereas when you, when a, director is really willing to just go where his subject is going. That's when you get stuff like capturing the Freedmen. Mm-hmm. That's when you get stuff like, have you ever seen salesman? Uh, I've never seen so I know that's supposed to be one of the classics of the genre. It is wonderful and horrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, the film is wonderful, but it is, we're dealing with some rough, rough stuff, but well, that's certainly do, where mining the gap comes from. Absolutely. Too. Yeah. You know, and it's, and and when they are willing to do that and you get to see life like on full display, but of course, you know, it's not on full display. They still have to edit it. So you're getting just a, a snapshot of it. Um, that's when it's at its most invigorating. And what so many of these other films are unwilling or unable to, to do is engage mm. with the subject, which is to say engage with real life on that level because it's scarier and riskier and more unpredictable. Will you remind me what won the documentary or the Oscar for documentary just this past January or February free solo March. Okay. When was it? February, February. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and it's, and it's a, it's a very good movie and it does have that sense of immediacy, but at the same time, the bigness of it makes it feel more akin to, uh, March of the Penguins than, uh, okay. than I know it isn't, but, yeah. uh, uh, yeah, do you think, no, I've never watched documentary now. Mm-hmm. Do you think, cause they parodied this season. They did, a uh, what was it called? Wild, wild country, which is a very recent thing. Right. Do you think they do a free solo or a mining the gap or something in the next season? Uh, I think they, I could, I definitely think they could do a free solo. Um, Mind Mind the gap the gap might be, be, I think it'd be a little harder. A little Not too impossible. Raw. Yeah. I think they could do it, but, uh, yeah. But oh, you, you well, wouldn't want to be seen as making fun of some of the stuff that is uncovered in that movie. I think these guys could do it partially okay. because in their episodes, they have some where it's just like, they're not trying to really be funny mm. here. They're more just some of them. They absolutely are being hilarious. Other times it's almost like they're just kind of paying homage to something and are absolutely willing to play into the drama yeah. of it. And, uh, I really want to see the one that. this season where Kate Blanchett plays, uh, a performance artist based on Marina Abramovich. Do you remember that there was a documentary about Marina Abramovich who had that art installation where you would just sit down and she would stare at you. <laughs> Yes. Okay. Now that's, uh, yes, that's familiar. Um, Uh, Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's a great show all around. I think you'd love it. I think you, here's why the Nanak of the North parody works so well. It's not merely a fun spoof of Nanak of the North, but it also winds up being just this fun little examination of the evolution of filmmaking itself. Ah. Um, it's, it's delightful. Okay. I, I actually watch it. all of those. Yeah. All right. Um, well, you can find us at battleship retention.com. Oh, real quick before, please don't, don't fast forward or skip to the end. We have to tell you about what's available on the website right now. Yes, that's right. Uh, which is our, 
uh, we do every spring and every fall. We do a commentary marathon this past Sunday. Yeah, this past Sunday, mm-hmm. uh, you and I and a rotating roster of our uh, favorite guests, critics, comedians, uh, sat down and watched the four arguably best Keanu Reeves action movies mm-hmm. uh, of all time. We watched Point Break, Speed, The Matrix, and John Wick, yeah. um, all in one sitting with people. And, and, we, and we recorded commentaries of a sort. Basically, we talked during the movie, mm-hmm. sometimes, sometimes about the movie, sometimes about sometimes whatever not. else. Yeah. Um, and these are all available. Now, I'll say this right now. If you are already a patron, yeah. don't buy it. You already are getting it. Right. Uh, and in fact, these are your patron, patron episodes for the month. We'll be taking, it takes a lot out of us. We'll, so, uh, yeah, if you're a patron, you, this is already available to you when you're hearing, this is already available to you. If you're not a patron, you just want to hear us talk during Keanu Reeves movies, then, uh, you can buy them there. Uh, you can buy the individual commentary, uh, tracks at $3 a piece or $10 for the whole shebang, which is the way to get the full experience and to save a couple bucks off of the total so um it was a ton of fun um after a year of watching harry potter movies to get into some Some r-rated shit very very tonally different (laughs) in a lot of ways yeah it was it was a lot of fun uh our guests were really great Uh, i spent like at the end of the day my face hurt because i was laughing a lot yeah um so yeah we had we had a a good time and because you were imagining how all those henchmen must feel when john wick shoots them in the face Yes, I would have liked someone in the film to be like, oh, no, my face. Yeah. <laughs> You've heard it. Yeah. Uh, but no, it's, uh, you know, I understand you don't want to stop the action for that, but I feel like that's a big part of it. But um, yeah, it was it was a great deal of fun. And so you can find that if you go to battleshipretention.com, you'll see a little uh, graphic on the left hand side that says Keanu kicks ass uh, yeah. with a very serious looking Keanu Reeves uh, from John Wick from John Wick. So uh, you click on that, and that'll take you everywhere you need to go. Okay, so uh, you can find us at BattleshipRetention.com. You can email us at David at BattleshipRetention.com or Tyler at BattleshipRetention.com. Um, I'm on Twitter at Davey Pretension. Uh, let me quick, real quick tell you what's on the website. We got reviews this week of uh, Hurley and... Uh, what else did I review? The Brink, Diane, Dumbo, um... It's a few uh, days. Uh, it's a few de- days old, but you can find my review of us. Sure, that's yeah from last week. Um, yeah, it wasn't up when we recorded last week. Um, our friends at Movie Meltdown had our friend Doug Jones mm-hmm. uh, on the on the podcast, um, and. Uh, Oh yeah, um, Alex wrote about the uh, Robert Bresson's "The Trial of Joan of Arc" just today yeah. uh, for his Criterion Prediction column. That's at the website. Now, Tyler, you're on Twitter at Tyler at BattleshipPretension.com, right? Sorry, Tyler Pretension. There we go. Yes, at Tyler Pretension is your Twitter handle, and you have a podcast and website called MoreThanOneLesson.com. That's right. And uh, right now, um, I've just been posting stuff from uh, the Fear of God podcast and the Two Geek Soup podcast. And then uh, Reed uh, recently saw Dumbo and his review is available at morethanonelesson.com. And then in the next uh, week or two, my second book uh, called Cinematic Suffering uh, will be available for $15.00. Shipping only in the United States. Sorry, everybody. It's too expensive to ship to you. Um, but yeah, it's uh, 
reviews of <laughs> reviews of terrible movies, and it wound up being uh, those reviews are still there, but also like kind of my own little exploration of what it means to be negative and why okay. that is a positive thing. Well, if you live in Paris. Based on the email I just got from my wife while we were recording, I might be in Paris in October. All right, so I can send them <laughs> so with David. Send, yeah, yeah, you can send them with me. And admittedly, uh, I'm going to be in Scotland in September, so if you, uh, if got, you, right, if so you live in Scotland... Part of the, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I was going to say part of Europe, but who knows where, if Scotland is a part of Europe by the time you get there. I don't even... I haven't <laughs> been paying attention. <laughs> uh, like, I, I kept seeing Brexit, I was like, I thought that was done. Yeah, no. Jeez. Uh-huh, yeah. He's got the energy. Theresa May can't get it together. Can't quite get the ball into the end zone there on Brexit. Uh, <laughs> a reference I'm sure she would have a total appreciation for. <laughs> what? They know about American football? No, they don't. <laughs> All right. Thank you for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 